Boys and ghouls, welcome to a very special interview episode. My name is Jason. I am the host of Dads from the Crypt. I'm joined by Ryan from the Black Girl Nerds. Today hello. we are hello. Today we are interviewing director, producer, writer Darren Scott. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we can get right into this because we got a lot to talk about. Uh, let's start from the beginning. Uh, what's the first movie you remember seeing? Wow. The first movie that I remember. Like in the, your first theater m- memory. Well, my first memory actually, uh, my first vivid memory of seeing a movie was when my parents loaded us all up in the station wagon mm-hmm. and went to the drive-in. Mm-hmm. And I think I was seven, maybe. My sister was five. And my parents went to see uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Oh, nice. That was the most boring thing. Conceivables. For little kids, it was torture. So we played in the back, got yelled at a little and fell asleep. But that, that's, that's my first uh, memory. Mm-hmm. Of, of, now, uh, when I started going to the theater by myself, was probably when I was 10 years old. Uh, and I remember uh, in Inglewood, uh, where I grew up uh, most of the years, there were two theaters on Manchester Boulevard, the Academy Theater, which showed uh, the studio movies, and the Fifth Avenue Theater, which showed a lot of uh, the independent. For example, uh, Here's a good example of it. Sounder would play at the Academy. Blackula would play at the Fifth Avenue. And so I started going to see uh, movies at those theaters. And I remember seeing uh, uh, you know, Genius Wears Tennis Shoes was the name of the, the Kurt Russell film. Uh, seeing Sounder. Uh, uh, seeing, seeing uh, uh, Red Sun mm-hmm. that had Charles Bronson in it. Uh, I was probably a teen before I started really getting heavily into movies, but I was always writing. I started uh, in grade school writing stories. And what kind of stories were you writing? Uh, generally science fiction. Mm-hmm. And, and before we start recording, you mentioned that you're a fan of the uh, Universal Monsters. Absolutely. Huge um, fan of Universal and Hammer. And Hammer, nice. Yeah. Big fan of British British horror, period. Did you but watch I, the like Amicus Tales from the Crypt movies? Those were the movies. 
that got me into horror anthologies. Mm. Tales from the Crypt, The Vault of Horror, From Beyond the Grave, uh, Asylum. You know, I could go on. Of course, uh, uh, Dead of Night, which started the whole thing in the 40s uh, and was a British horror movie. So a lot of people uh, from my generation go, oh, you love horror anthologies. You're really into uh, Creepshow and the, the 80s ones. <laughs> they were fine. I liked them. You know, Creepshow was fine, but it was no Tales of the Crypt as far as I was concerned. Yeah, so I, mean I definitely <laughs> love the, uh, the British Port and my, Port Meows, they would call them, but anthologies. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, how did you get into filmmaking? Uh, I went to USC, and uh, I got a bachelor's of science there in chemical engineering. Actually, I loved movies. I was a movie nut. Went all the time, but I didn't see it as something that you could make a living doing so i was doing creative writing taking creative writing courses on the side and i thought i'll write short stories because i really loved sci-fi sci-fi short stories huge fan of harlan ellison mm-hmm. and uh i had two idols growing up two people who i looked up to as a kid and that was that those were muhammad ali and rod Serling. <laughs> there you go they were, those two were like deities to me. And uh, when I got to college, I even uh, painted one wall of my dorm room black and then painted the stars on it and then wrote The Zone, mm. you know, because I was such a Twilight Zone fanatic, I still am. Uh, but you asked me how I got into the business, I really stumbled into it. I really stumbled into it because even though I'm from Los Angeles, Los Angeles area, I knew nobody in the movies. Inglewood was as far from Hollywood as someplace in Texas, you know, in terms of our connection to it. Uh, we had one uh, celebrity who lived in Inglewood who moved in, and that was Whitman Mayo, who was Grady on Sanford. So that was the only one. <laughs> So at SC, though, I made friends with guys in the film school because they were creative and I just had more interesting conversations with them. Plus, we would talk movies. And after I got out of uh, SC, I went to work for Procter & Gamble as a project manager at a paper plant in Oxnard. Hmm. And uh, I hated it. I hated corporate with a purple passion. So I got this idea. I said, well, the thing I love is movies. Love them to death. So how could I be involved with movies all the time? So I got this idea. This is the early days of uh, video stores, video rental stores. This was before Blockbuster or anything. All of the video rental stores are independent. And I actually went to work at one of them in the evenings for free. Uh, I said, I just want to work here and learn the business because my dream job is 
watching movies all day and talking about movies all day with people who come in and random random movies. I'd be involved with movies all the time. Uh, that didn't really work out. But uh, I ended up breaking up with a girlfriend who I was engaged to at the time, and I needed some place to live because I was staying with her, and I ended up moving in with a buddy of mine who was a filmmaker, Jeff Burr, and who I did my first uh, two movies with. And once I moved in with him, everybody who was coming into the house was all about movies and about getting into the business and how are we going to get a film made and all this. And I fell in love with it. And I said, uh, you know, I've been writing these short stories, but they don't pay any money. You can't make a living at that. And my buddy Jeff said, why don't you try writing screenplays? They pay for those. I said, okay, okay. And push come to shove, I ended up leaving my job at Procter & Gamble. Uh, I was 24 at the time. So, and that's the point in your time in your life, the period in your life, when you should take chances and try to find what you want to do. Is in your early, mid, even late 20s. Because it's harder later, you know? Much harder to, to, to go through those. I went from make, making a really good salary because chemical engineers came out of school making just about the highest salaries of anyone with a BS degree to making no money and living where we all moved into this house in Tahunga and worked on our dream of getting a movie going. And eventually uh, we raised $255,000 to make a whisper to a scream, which was my first film as a writer producer and was what a horror anthology. Man, it's so. just so interesting to hear you talk about like just the start and the hustle of not being afraid to be like, okay, this is my dream that I want to follow. And I'm just, I'm so curious about like the conversations, you know, starting out all these filmmakers in the house, what you guys were talking about to just even, you know, begin to know where you wanted to go with your dream. Like, how do you write a screenplay? Cause you know, you're not Google at the time. So how are you like, <laughs> you know, taking the chances of like learning all the techniques and everything? Sure. You know, I just read, read some of them and started writing. It was easier to start out on a horror anthology because they're shorter stories. You can write a 20, 25 minute story and, uh, as opposed to writing an entire script that's more complicated and uh, took me longer to get good at uh, than doing the short stories. But you know, yeah, it was a risk taking the chance. And in fact, if I would known everything that I should have known, I probably wouldn't have done. Because mm -hmm. my bud uh, told me that he had, uh, some money in a trust and uh, this is Jeff Burr and he says well I've got this money I got $40,000 uh, which in the early 80s was a decent little amount of money you make something on video for that and so it's like look we're going to try to raise more money but we've got this money here so if we can't raise the money then we'll make a 
a movie on video with the money from my trust. And that gave me a little bit more nerve to do it. It's like, we're not going to come out here and just not do anything. So I quit my job. And uh, later I found out that that he couldn't access that money for like another 20 years. I don't know. I don't think he realized it at the time uh, either. So it was a big risk because if we hadn't been able to raise the money, Mm -hmm. we'd kind of been screwed. But luckily, uh, we actually were able to raise $255,000. And that was for uh, From Whisper to a Scream? Yes. I mean, getting Vincent Price in your uh, first movie that you um, hustled for is pretty good get. Yeah. And uh, there's a good story behind that. We wanted Vincent Price in the movie desperately. And uh, as we were trying to raise the money, we told the potential investors, we're going to have Vincent Price in. <laughs> they recognized his name, obviously. Uh, so in order to approach him, there was a service in Los Angeles at that time. You couldn't do this now. People would get totally sued. But uh, for $10, they would sell you the address of any celebrity. <laughs> what? You could get ten dollars. Is that like the uh, Star Maps? <laughs> it wasn't called Star Maps. Uh, I forget the name. Yeah, they're they're I'm, long gone. Obviously. Yeah, I'm so. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the modern equivalent is getting a IMDb account and looking at people's agents, which is yeah, yeah. yeah. But we actually went to the man's house. <laughs> wow. Lived on <laughs> a street above Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> Beautiful neighborhood. So we drive. To the street, we got the address, and we park across the street, and we stare at the house, and then we start arguing about who's going to go up there because we're terrified. Oh. We're terrified <laughs> to go and knock. What if it's not even the right address? What if somebody comes to the door and you know? So we're like, ah, we're arguing about this. We're, we're gnawing our arms off. And uh, the mailman comes. <laughs> the mailman comes and watch the mailman come, knock on the door, and Vincent Price opens the door and gets his mail. <laughs> and now we're like, okay, we know he's home and we know he's answering the door. We cannot punk out that. <laughs> <laughs> so we got our nerve up and marched up to the door, knocked. We had a copy of the script, which was bound in red, I remember. And uh, he opens the door, and he could not have been more gracious. He could have not have been more. Uh He invited us in. He gave us, he he served us iced tea. He showed us his art collection. He introduced us to his wife. Wow. He he would read the script. Wait, so in what year was this? This was had to be in uh, mid 80s? 84. 84. And he, I, I just picture him coming out with like a big smoker, smoking jacket. And <laughs> I don't even remember what he was wearing. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, and who was with you at the time? So it was uh, Jeff Burr. Jeff Burr, yes, the yeah. pride director. So we did that. And he said, I'll read it. So in the meantime, 
we got uh, a guy who was uh, who was a, uh, an heir to a carpet company in Dalton, Georgia. We shot uh, from Whisper to a Scream in Dalton, Georgia, which is a town about 90 miles north of Atlanta. And at the time, and actually still, it was the carpet capital of the world. 65% of the world's carpet was made in Dalton, Georgia. And there were all of these carpet mills, huge mills. And they were almost all family owned, you know, and uh, uh, private companies. So you knew who the rich people in town were. And, and by the way, Jeff was from Dalton. That's why. Mm -hmm. he and uh, you knew who the rich people in town were. They owned the carpet mills. So we hit up all those people, or at least my partner, Bill Burr, Jeff's brother, hit them up because uh, I couldn't go to Dalton, Georgia in 1984 to raise money. Yeah. Uh, I put together all the materials for the fundraising, uh, the legal papers, the, the presentation, everything. And I gave that to Bill. I said, Bill, raise the money. And if you succeed, then I'll show up. Because situation there. Uh, to make it, to, to, make, to really clarify it for you. Do you know who uh, Dalton George's Congress person is now in the House of Representatives? It's not who I think it is, is it? Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay. So, you know about Dalton. I spent three months there in 1984 and somehow came home. My mom was real worried about it. <laughs> I didn't know really how Dalton was uh, mm -hmm. at the time. But anyway, uh, we raised the money. And uh, as we're getting ready to go there, oh, and I, I was a writer, but I was made also producer because I had done uh, three or $4 million worth of capital improvement projects mm. that I was in charge of when I was working at Procter & Gamble. So I'm the only one who had handled any amount of money. So they're like, okay, so you be the producer. So that's how I ended up, uh, ended up being a producer. And we raised the money. Then Vincent Price uh, graciously said, no, I don't want to be in this. We said, well, let's shoot all the parts of the movie that he's not in. Mm. And then when we get back, we'll try to get somebody. We'll try him again and we'll try or try to get somebody of similar stature to be in it. Maybe we can get Christopher Lee or something like that. You know, <laughs> we're thinking. And so we went and we shot the whole movie. And then uh, we edited it together. And then got in contact with Vincent Price again and got him to screen it, screened the episodes. He told us no again. But then uh, we went back to his agent a little later and said, look, we'll give him $10,000 for two days. 
which was a lot back then. Mm. And finally he said, okay, I'll do it. And we shot his portion of it at the old Hammond Lumber Yard, which was Roger Corman's studio in Santa Monica uh, in the early, mm. uh, really up through the uh, early 90s before he gave it up. Wow. You should make a movie about this experience because it's it's almost Seriously, like I want to see a this lot film. To it. It's almost like Rudy in a way, in a way like <laughs> I wish you guys could have seen the look on the faces of the people who've given us the money when I showed up in Dalton. Oh boy. They're mm-hmm. like yeah, this 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 is a story worth making a movie of. With, yeah, it's like yeah. it's uh, finding Vincent. There you go. That's your title. I had some experiences <laughs> there where I had to swallow some pride in order to keep the project. Let's put it this way: things yeah, I bet. that I had to ignore. Yeah, but you know, I, I want to get into the film business, mm-hmm. and uh, you had to take a bit more guff than you do today. Obviously, it's been a drastic change. When I first came in, I didn't know of any other black producers uh, mm-hmm. in the mid 80s. I'm sure actually there were some. You had guys like Michael Schultz uh, making movies, but it wasn't much. After the end of the 70s black exploitation era, and before Spike Lee came on the scene, really, he kind of restarted the engines. Right. Yeah. Now, there was a soldier story. There was a soldier story. And there was a soldier story. There really wasn't many uh, films made with black casts uh, during that time period. It was just like dead. So, you know, uh, I was like, well, let's do let's do horror, you know, and. Uh, uh, it was my idea to do a horror anthology because I thought that was the most producible thing mm-hmm. and the most commercial thing for for uh, a beginning group of filmmakers. So how do you meet, how does Rusty fit into the scenario? Because you got to have, you're talking about an all-Black cast. I feel like one of the best things you do, one of the coolest things you can do is have a genius producer like yourself and also have a Black director. To yeah. really get it, like, make sure the culture is represented. So I, this is a story I need to know. Well, uh, Rusty and I were hooked up by a mutual friend who uh, grew up with him in Pittsburgh or near Pittsburgh. The funny thing is, Rusty and I were at USC at the same time, but we didn't know, really know each other. Wow. I might have met him once the whole four years mm-hmm. I was there. But, uh, and this w- would be the late 80s, 88, 89, when uh, he and I hooked up and we became fast friends and we decided to try to make movies together. And uh, we had our first project, it was called The Other Class, that we shot uh, basically a trailer for. And The Other Class was an ensemble Black romantic comedy. Everybody in town told us black people won't, won't go see romantic comedies. They would never go see something like that. They'll only see hood movies and gangster movies. So uh, it was some years before that changed. Of course, in the early aughts, 
as everybody was copying Tyler Perry. That's the only kind of black film you could get made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it went from you can only make hood movies to you can only make these the uh, middle class uh, romantic comedies. But anyway, uh, Rusty and I worked on that. That didn't work out, and uh, we had a mutual love for a movie. Uh, this is Final Attack. <laughs> uh, it was one of my favorite comedies and still is right. <laughs> and we had the idea both of us will probably say it was his idea because <laughs> we do that with Tales from the Hood we're both like no man that was <laughs> but uh, uh, we came up with this concept fear of a black hat and fear of black hats basically a rap version of Spinal Tap mm-hmm. comedy. And uh, we made a little uh, promo trailer for that, which was turned down by everybody in town. And we were despairing a little bit. And then one of the people who had seen it, seen the little trailer we made, went to another company, ITC. And uh, I had already made a movie for ITC, which was uh, Stepfather 2. And so we knew the people there. And this new executive went over there and showed Chris Gorog, who was uh, the head of ITC at that time. Uh, and he loved it. And he gave us a million dollars to uh, do Fear of a Black Hat. And that was our first movie together. Then, of course, uh, I did Menace to Society and uh, uh, Love in a 45 and got the idea uh, on Love in a 45 to do uh, a black horror anthology. And Rusty, who was always... Uh, heavily into social causes he said hey you know we should make these stories socially conscious and there was certainly a lot going on at the time yep. a lot going on at the time the la riots had taken place the king thing also there was lots of material to work off of to do the stories now the only sad thing about it we really enjoyed making a movie and still one of my favorite experiences and one of my very favorite things uh, that I've ever done. Uh, the only sad thing is that the stories in Tales from the Hood work just as well now as they did then because we still have the same problems. Right. And, um. uh, you know, but as given it, it it's made it stand the test of time for a lot of people but i wish some of these issues uh had improved more than they have uh, since we made it yeah we on my podcast we invited the black girl nerds to come on and do our review because we're reviewing different anthologies and i right. haven't seen it in a long time and again your perspective changes as you get older 
Absolutely. And I saw, you know, as a, a like in my teens or twenties, and I remember the horror bits, the zombie and the, the dolls and everything, but seeing yeah. it now much older with a lot more perspective and just, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, yeah, this is this the 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 horror I'm used to wasn't scary anymore. It was the other horror that was the scary part, and like I right. said, it's still it's still here. That was always the idea: human beings are mm-hmm. scarier than any monsters. Yeah. Um, so, going just step back and stepping back for a minute, were you influenced by like Tales of the Crypt, the TV show, or was that? Did that help you get the movie made when because that was so because that was so popular at the time and the name Tales of the Crypt that mon- that like moniker was kind of back in the subconscious. Yeah. I'm sure it probably helped us uh, get it financed. I'm sure that uh, nobody at the financing company ever mentioned Tales from the Crypt, but Tales from the Tales from the mm-hmm. I'm sure it helped us. Uh, on the other hand, no, I n- actually never watched the Tales from the Crypt TV series. Oh. Okay. So you watched, I mean, I, you know, I loved, uh, as I said, the British ones. The British one, yeah. I did like, uh, I did like, uh, uh, you know, like an hour, you know, I, uh, Creep Show. Mm-hmm. I liked Creep Show. I liked, uh, the lower budget. What was the lower budget one that? Uh, oh, tales uh, from the dark side. Tales from the dark side. Yeah. yeah. Tales from the dark side. Um, that was, was because it was obviously done on a micro budget, right? And yet they were still able to tell some pretty good stories and get get two features out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was uh, Rusty a horror fan as well? On. Um, not so much, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he likes horror, but he wasn't like a, a, a in the horror crowd and right. You know, a horror guy like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the, 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 there's one thing that's, that was very that's very apparent when watching this movie as a horror fan is that these people know and love horror. Yes. Um, yes. What and he's gotten into it much more uh, mm-hmm. in the ensuing years. Yeah. Yeah. Were there specific movies that you wanted to pull from and reference as you were writing the script? Hmm. You know, just the general love of horror anthologies. Mm-hmm. And I'd seen so many and uh, liked them so much. Like, were you like, I want the zombie from this movie that that's what I'm thinking of for this, the first segment and this and that? Well, there were some Twilight Zone things. Mm, okay. That we put in it. And some of them got cut. Oh. Do you, are you a fan of the Twilight Zone? Um, I am, I am. Yeah, I haven't watched them in a long time, but yeah. Okay. Well, there's a Twilight Zone episode where uh, Lee Marvin goes to the grave of a gunslinger who he had a beef with. And that gunslinger, before he died, had said, if this guy ever comes anywhere near my grave, I'm going to reach up and grab him. And uh, so all the people in the bar that night bet Lee Marvin that he won't do it. And he's like, you guys all know I'm brave. You know, I've 
hunted down outlaws have done all this. Why do you think I'll be afraid? And they're like, because we'd be afraid. <laughs> and they go up there, the guy's grave at midnight. Uh, so Lee Marvin goes to the grave. And what he has to do is plunge a knife into the dirt of the grave. And then they're all going to come in the morning. Then they're going to see that he did it. And then he's going to be paid off bets because he's bet everybody mm -hmm. in the bar. And they go up there and they, uh, Lee Marvin goes up. He plunges the knife into the grave. He's terrified, of course. Nothing happens. So now he's feeling pretty good about himself. And he raises the knife and puts it in again. And he gets up to go. And we just see him go. <laughs> yanked down out of frame and it's like oh my god so they come the next morning and they find his body next to the grave mm -hmm. and they say uh, we killed a man you know the ghost killed him and Lee Van Cleef you know who Lee Van Cleef is yeah good about the ugly yes Lee Van Cleef, who's in the episode, says it's obvious what happened. He had put the knife through his long oh. coat. <laughs> he said, so, pinning his coat to the grave. He said, when he went to get up, it jerked him. He said, and in his own mind, the outlaw had reached up and grabbed him. He was already scared half to death his heart gave out and that's the story and then uh the gunslinger's sister who has also major beef with lee marvel says you think that's how it happened you think that's how it happened huh which way is the wind blowing same as it was last night east she stands next to the grave and she's got this big coat on and the wind is coming from the same direction it was that night and she puts the coat out and the wind is blowing the coat away from the grave mm -hmm. very hard so how did it get over there and she laughs and her her demented laugh ends the thing now why am i why did i tell you this whole story well two reasons one i love telling twilights it's his own stories so can always get into that. but two the original ending of the doll episode was the dolls are chasing him around the house then somebody comes there the next day and they find him hung and he's hanging and his feet are like four feet off the ground and they're like, oh, he hung himself. And uh, Art Evans, who was in the episode, uh, points out that all the tables and chairs are in the corners of the room. There's nothing for him to step on top of. Hmm. So how did he hang himself? And that was supposed to be the eerie end. Well, studio saw it and said, not enough punch to that. We'll give you some more money to have the dolls come back and just slaughter. <laughs> and that's when we went back to shop. And that's what's in the movie now. So I think that was the biggest 
influence on a story, and it didn't even make it into uh, wow. even make it into the final movie. That's, yeah, that's interesting because that would have made a very creepy ending, but the other one's a bit more satisfying. Yes, because <laughs> you no, really want to see him get it. And we didn't argue with him. With with, with him, we're like, you give us a hundred thousand dollars more, mm-hmm. shoot that we'll do it. You know? I mean, yeah, you, you want to get more Cheeto Brother effects? Go for it. Yes, loved working with them. Loved doing stop motion, which has obviously fallen way way out of favor in the. Uh, age of uh cgi um so, have you seen have you seen mad god no it's uh phil tippett who did like who's a master of stop motion animation was working on a sure. film for 20 years and maybe 30 years and it finally came out last year it's all stop motion oh great wow. it's like a, it's like an hour and a half fever dream it's bizarre but oh, um, i have check that out it's on shutter if you have it Okay, yeah, definitely have shutter. I got shutter. Okay. I've got all. There you go. Uh, Kino cult. I got that too. Nice. I wanted to say, um, kind of sticking with that that scene of you know having that payback as soon as we open up tales from the hood, you know, with the character of Martin, and you realizing like, hey. Even today, that stuff hasn't changed. We're talking about police brutality. Right. And I remember what I hadn't seen. I'm 32. I hadn't seen it when it first came out. And I'm not, you know, I get scared easily. So it took me a minute to get right. to it. Sure. So I got to it and I was like, I opened up with this scene and I was immediately pissed. Knowing, you know, the Black experience in America, you know, you already know you're going to have that, that right. effect. Right. But I'm curious, um, not like you have to reach too far, but I'm curious between you and Rusty, what personal conversations or stories I'm like pitching you guys sitting around the table saying okay we have this horror genre that we're playing with but yeah. how can we put our everyday life in this as well like what black people are going through in the 90s how right. do we show that you know where we can still have that horror element that's going to pull a certain audience in but right. there's a point to this yes and that's pretty much it sitting around in his apartment brainstorming and on the phone, brainstorm. And we brainstormed all four stories together. And then uh, we split them to script. Mm-hmm. And I scripted uh, the first episode and the last episode. Mm-hmm. And he scripted the two in the middle. You know, they could have been rearranged or whatever. It really didn't matter. Uh, and as I said, we both contributed to the stories of all the episodes. But uh, we just split them up for scripting. Uh, purposes and we had a draft we sent to spike uh rusty had been uh in school days so he had a number to contact spike with and we sent the script to spike and at that time if you remember in the early mid 90s spike was very active not only doing his own movies but producing and he did quite a few, and he loved the script. And he's the one that got us, uh, got us the money. Uh, first, he took it to Universal. They considered it, but passed. He had been working with Universal. That's why, why he did that. And then there was this new company, Savoy, which only existed six or seven years. Uh, but they liked it, and they 
they gave us $6 million to do, which was huge to us at that point because we'd n- never done anything for more than three at that point. So it was a lot of fun. You could uh, shoot a movie non-union for $6 million in Los Angeles, all over Los Angeles at that time. It would be impossible now. The movie would probably cost $20, $25 million to try to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, now in LA because we built all the sets all the interiors uh, were sets in a giant uh, was a big warehouse uh, in downtown Los Angeles that had two floors so we we had uh, sets on the bottom floor and the upper floor and just filled the place with these Huge sets. I've never, I've never, never been able to have that many sets again. I sure would love to. I love shooting on uh, stage. You can control things more, you know. Yeah, I'm just imagining like moving all around. Like he had the paintings in the one scene. Yeah, you know, like the little like doll feet and stuff. Like just, I'm just imagining people like just working it through in this set, which like you said, you can't do right now. Like you adding a lot of special effects, but all that yeah. stuff is like, you, you can work with set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had a little bit of computer stuff, but we couldn't really afford that much because uh, digital effects at that time were done on these silicon graphics workstations. They cost a hundred thousand dollars a piece. And so you went to a company to do your effects. It was expensive. And it was mm. time consuming. Yeah. So you did as much as you could physically. And, you know, we, we always had the philosophy, I still do to this day, that when you combine physical effects and then enhance them with CGI, that's when you get the best result. When it's all CGI, it seems phony and don't like it. And I still, to this day, want to go back in because we ran out of money at the end go back in and fix that tongue yeah (laughs) after he says welcome to hell yeah there's something endearing about that there's something endearing like as a time capsule about that level of effect but it's also really cringe at the same time a bad effect yeah looks like a cartoon it drives me crazy I'm always like, you know what? I'm gonna take. I have friends in CGI. I I'd a, a rip a, a 4K of this, take it to them, and say, just fix that. So <laughs> I just have that. I just have that <laughs> with a fixed tongue. You know. Well, well, and then you have that great merge, though, from Clarence Williams himself into the the makeup version that and that was yeah. with screaming that mad was george that's, that, that was, that's really good that's really impressive mad george crazy loved him <laughs> loved him you know he did the twisted david allen greer mm-hmm. body that twists all around and this shit ain't over bitch <laughs> <laughs> oh fantastic line like that just i love that part so it's great it's great <laughs> So, uh, yeah. You know. Was was there anything else that was um, either changed as originally scripted or uh, in editing that was changed? Hmm, that's a good question. 
trying to think. That was the major one. Um, no, there wasn't much else that was changed from the script, and that was because of Spike. Spike mm -hmm. was the ultimate executive producer. He didn't bother us the whole time we were making the movie. He said, go fight, go guys, you know, make your film. I've got you the money, make it. He didn't interfere with anything. But when we got into post and a new head of the company came in who decided he wanted to completely recut our movie uh, and make it more of a comedy. Hmm. This, guy, this guy was an absolute jerk. I, I, I will uh, say that. I won't say his name, but I'll say he was an absolute jerk. And so he had like 20 pages of notes on our final cut. That was just going to destroy it. And Spike got a copy of the notes. And he just wrote on it. No. And sent it back. And the guy was just nice. beside himself. But we were so happy. So Tales from the Hood is pretty pure. It's pretty pure what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. Or for good or bad, if you like it, uh, we're responsible, and if you don't, we're responsible. Can't blame it on, uh, can't blame it on the studio. Do you um to kind of get into the characters a little bit? Not to say you're responsible for this, but <laughs> do you know if there's anybody else that was considered for Mr. Spin, uh, Mr. Sims? Because we know we got Clarence Williams. He did his thing in this, and right. also, can I add on to that? How did the bees of sweat? Get creative. <laughs> the beads of sweat. Yes. Were you around for this effect? Did you did you happen to see this up no. close? Yeah, when he got sweaty. That's just him. In fact, I'll tell you something. Uh, when we first screened the movie for the theater uh, for the studio, uh, we didn't have the effects in yet, and. We show them the last scene and Clarence going off. And they were like, the effects are great in that. And we're like, there are no effects yet. That's just his performance. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, really? <laughs> so all the sweating, I, that's, that's, Clarence was intense. He was an intense dude. And uh, I'm sure we talked about other people, but I can't even remember them because I can't imagine anybody else in that role in the movie than Clarence Williams, you know? And uh, we've made a couple of sequels and we got Keith David, close we could get. And, uh, that was a cool uh, thing to have. We got Tony Todd for the last mm -hmm. one, but uh, obviously not nearly the budgets that we had back then. And, uh, you know, they were cool, but Clarence, what he did was transcendent. I mean, yes. it's one of my favorite performances ever. And definitely one of my favorite performances uh, in movies that I've done. Oh, it's fantastic. It's one, yeah, it is so over the top. It's just amazing. And uh, I actually, I made a super cut of every time someone says the shit. 
Um, yes, yeah, that's great. I actually yeah. sat down and, and in the wraparound. I, I sat down to edit it all together, and it's yep. thirty-seven times. That's awesome. I didn't even know how many. Fantastic. Times it was. Yeah. Uh, I'll send you a link, but it's uh, yeah, thirty-seven. Awesome. I'm I'm including the poopity pop, the doo doo, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That shit too. Did it? Was that scripted or was that just him ad libbing? Uh that he ad libbed. Yeah, it's so great. Oh, that's yeah. genius. That's got to be like the best line. Yeah, and I think he added a few the shits, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just, we really wanted to uh, get him uh, in Tales 2, which he did several years ago, but uh, he was 81 at the time and uh, was a little ill, and he said he couldn't do it. He wanted to. Yeah, and I think and that's one of the things I lo I really like about this movie is that the wraparound is so campy, so over the top, but the tales themselves are just so biting. But yeah. you have like it's kind of like I always look at the wraparound as like a dessert. Right. You know, you, you have your meat, you have your sex, your courses in between, but the wraparound is what kind of gels everything together. And Clarence Williams' performance is just yeah. magnetizing. Yeah, and it's seldom that you see a really good wraparound. Mm -hmm. in good horror anthology movies my favorite wraparound of all time is in asylum mm. uh, which is a british uh one of the best british uh horror anthologies and it's got a just killer wraparound killer yeah. i would say well, it's even a little better than ours but mm -hmm. i'll put our set how about that um, but I mean, I think that's why tells. That's why I always say tells the crypt the show works so well because everyone loves the crypt keeper. He's just yeah, iconic. Yeah. Everyone loves it. And if the episode itself is subpar, you still have him popping up at the end, right? Kind of bring you back up. So that's why the show works every time. It's kind of like a horror host. Yeah, exactly. It's the ultimate Saturday show, and it's like, oh, okay. The movie was bad, but I got some jokes to tell about it. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you flipping to... Where'd you grow up? Me? You guys didn't grow up in L.A., did you? Uh, I live in I L.A. now, in but mm -hmm. I grew up in Oregon. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, okay. My father's from North Carolina. Oh, nice, uh, nice. I got a lot of family back there. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Yeah, well, in L.A., you know, everybody from... The, Wherever they come from has a horror host. Here, yeah. it was a guy named Seymour. Seymour's Monster Rally. And uh, actually, Seymour went on to start uh, the haunted uh, nights at Knott's Berry's Farm. Mm -hmm. At first, they were called Seymour's Haunt at, at Knott's Berry's Farm. That's kind of the genesis of uh, amusement park more in uh, October's started with that so but he was a guy he would put on a really bad uh, 50s sci-fi or horror movie uh, low budget thing and he would pop up in the corner of the screen and talk shit yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. well I guess she's sorry she went upstairs that time isn't she <laughs> you know, yeah. pop in and then you go away. So, uh, 
a good host is great for horror. I want to talk about might be the other side of the MVP as far as horrific goes is David Allen Greer is just oh man so yeah. terrifying. Yeah, let me tell you something. When he came in to read for it, we were like, David Allen Greer, he's hilarious. Yeah, funny mm-hmm. guy. He's on Living Color. Yep, this guy is an abuser. He came in and uh, auditioned. We were like, <laughs> one, call security, and two, you're hired, you know? And I think uh, I think the episode is much more effective for it being someone who you would never expect mm-hmm. be like that. Because, you know, much of the time, maybe most of the time, when people hear that someone has killed their spouse or uh, been beating them or doing terrible things, the neighbors are like, he was such a nice guy. He was cool. The people at work, oh, we couldn't imagine that he would do something like that. You know, and he brought that quality to it just from the fact that he was on TV being funny all the time at that exact moment. So, he gave a fantastic performance, a really scary performance. And for people who see the movie now, who really aren't that familiar with him, it's just a tremendous dramatic performance. And they might not realize that uh, this guy was a really funny guy and is still a funny guy. Yeah. Right. Was he like trying to get into more dramatic roles? Was he trying to break off? Break out of his... came out for it. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I mean, I'm sure he was typecast right. at that time as a funny guy, a harmless guy. So this was a great part for him. Mm-hmm. He knocked it out of the park. Who else was in consideration? You know, I really don't remember. Yeah. I really don't remember. I mean, you, know, it, you find somebody. Mm-hmm. Everyone else fades well, away. Well, you know almost 30 years also takes some of your memories out. But when you find somebody that great in a part, you can't imagine or even remember who oh, yeah. else you thought of. You know, it's like he made that part so great. I don't know who we probably would have gotten somebody who usually plays bad guys right. to play the part. And it would have worked, but it wouldn't have been as good. Well, and you set him up with like almost a triple fake out because you're building it up as the monster and, you're, and you've got right. those like those hands and claws coming out. You're so you're expecting something monstrous. Right. Right. Then he comes out and you're like, oh, it's just David Allen Greer. But no, it's a no. real, a real life monster. He's a real life monster. He's someone you really have to be afraid of, you know, instead mm. of just coming from your imagination. And his death is. Yeah. Exquisitely satisfying. Yes. Yep. Yep. I like the slow reveal on like the monster tattoo on his arm and everything too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little touches. Yeah. But yeah, he was great. Great to work with. The whole cast. We didn't really have any problems with anybody. You know, it was a fun. And I went on to direct some, to direct things. Uh, and 
generally the most fun I've had on sets were things that I directed, obviously, because directing is so much fun. But making Tales from the Hood uh, was as a more fun than anything I do, uh, directed uh, myself. And of course, I was, Rusty was very creatively generous with me in that I was by his side all the time and giving him notes and things. And uh, when he agreed, he did. When he didn't agree, he did. And that's the way it should work with, with a creative producer and a director. But uh, uh, really working with him on that one and having so much input to it planted the seed in my mind that, uh, oh, maybe I should try directing. It planted the seed because at first I was like, well, I didn't go to film school, so I can't be a director. That's what I thought going in. But I can write and I can produce and all this. And, you know, after years of uh, working with a lot of first time directors, uh, I decided to become one myself and did that. Um, not to steer too way too much away from the directing, but you kind of hit something where you were talking about notes and you and Rusty kind of bouncing things off of each other yeah. and finding out. I'm curious for writing, what were some of the things you guys kind of picked up? I guess either learning from each other or just overall in the experience as writers that you guys learned from working on this project, whether it, it was just being in like the horror genre itself. Uh, you know, I worked in a horror genre before, but it was just going back and forth, uh, really, once we scripted the things, mm -hmm. we didn't have a ton of notes for each other because we had worked so hard on the stories. We knew what all the beats were gonna be, you know? Okay. So, uh, not like any other writing experience, but uh, Rusty had written, uh, some little short horror, socially conscious horror plays, which he had put on uh, at a theater downtown. So he kind of had that. And I had done a horror anthology and loved horror anthologies. So we kind of put the two things together. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful to him uh, really having that strong idea of let's make this socially relevant because i was a horror guy you know i'm coming out and i'm like let's come up with stories that are scary and cool as possible it's like yeah. we have to say something too i'm like <laughs> let's say something okay let's do that too yeah that, that really that, was, that's what's made it stand the test of time really. yeah that's what makes it special and probably way ahead of its time than it should have been yeah. And, uh, you know, it's got a cult following now. At the time we put it out, it didn't really do that well at the box office because the studio uh, marketed it as a straight comedy. And they totally played down uh, the social content. They thought that was box office poison. Uh, Come to find out that's what people liked about it the most. Yep. And it, it had both those qualities, the horror. We did have humor in it, obviously, you know, 
and uh, it should have been sold in a more balanced way instead of kind of making fun of it. But I don't think the marketing people uh, really understood what they had at that time. And you can hear this complaint, and I'm sure you do hear this same complaint from 90% of the filmmakers you talk to. So that's the way the business goes. When you get great marketing and a good movie, it's a miracle. And those are the hits that you see out there. And, you know, and so many great films aren't hits. I mean, two of my favorite films of the 80s uh, came out in the same year at the on the same day. Blade Runner and The Thing. Yeah. <laughs> they came out on the same Friday. They both got critically blasted and they bombed. Mm -hmm. And now they're uh, two of the iconic movies uh, of, of the decade. And people love them. So, you know, E.T. killed uh, that killed uh, the thing. Right. Or like, oh, no, we want our aliens to be sweet now. You know, I like DT. So scary aliens are, are generally more commercialist than not being made by Steven Spielberg. He can make a friendly alien and make it work. Mm -hmm. The rest of us, we need to make it kind of scary. <laughs> um, but okay, so I guess going back to the fact of okay we know marketing comes in a big play right there's a lot of social you know awareness a lot of things that you guys were trying to bring attention to that maybe were played down because you know they wanted to say hey this is a straight comedy yeah but as far as you guys had a set goal you know everybody on set knew what you guys were trying to do as far as a project so right. i'm curious at some of these scenes um the the late uh lamont that played jerome yeah, and you great. know great. Yeah, yeah just just fantastic and i'm just so curious he has so many intense scenes you know the thing that sticks in my mind is being in a cell right next to a white supremacist like those kind That's of scenes like that one of the favorite scenes i've ever written yep yep and uh i told a joke at that particular actor's uh wake because unfortunately he passed passed away uh yeah yeah and passed away uh, rel relatively young. But I talk about my experience of watching that particular scene get shot. Because uh, it was a good scene and I was happy with what I put down. But, you know, uh, it could be accused of being a little bit on the nose or whatever if. You didn't have the right person mm -hmm. doing it. And I remember watching the first, the first take of him doing the scene, the, the guy who played the white supremacist. And I watched that scene and I watched him do it. And I went, I'm a genius. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't a genius. He was the genius. Right. He was a genius, but the, the person, I'm like, man, I wrote an awesome scene. But then looking back at it later, I'm like, no, 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 he made it awesome. And that's what you really want from an actor, you know, uh, as, a, as a director, as a writer, to take the material and elevate it. 
and and make it so much better than it is uh, on the page. And when you're working with really great actors, that's what happens. And uh, I always say, even things that I wrote and directed, people ask me, well, what's your favorite uh, line from the movie? And I'll go, well, this line. And they'll go, why? And I was like, he ad-libbed that. And the stuff that's ad-libbed, that's great, is more exciting. Because you're like, oh, yeah. cool, you know? So you love that forever, even though you didn't write it. So there was nothing weird. So was there anything that felt weird to the actors? Or they were like, okay, we got to make this stick with the, like, we have a point we're trying to get to. So we're going to go all in on this, no matter what, you know, what happens, what the reaction, you know, we're going to add lit, we're going to follow the script, but I'm playing this true to what we know in life. Was there any hesitation from anybody? Well, not hesitation. Yeah. Uh, the only person who felt a little nervous sometimes and asked us a few times, is that okay? <laughs> was Corbin Burnson. Yeah. Because he had to play this virulent racist. Yeah. And I remember after he says, you, 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 you nigglings! Cut. Yeah. Is that okay, guys? You guys, you guys cool? We're like, great. <laughs> great. Keep saying it just like that. You know, it was in the script. The word was in the script. But uh, he was nervous saying. Mm. You know. Uh, I have the opposite issue usually. Frankly, uh when you make a movie that's a crime movie or a horror movie or anything intense uh, with a black cast, there is a tendency, and I never fought it. And now I try to tone it down, but for years, there's a tendency, uh, the actors add the N-word constantly. They just, it, they're just ad-libbing and they're set talking to each other and they say it over and over again. Sometimes it's like, okay, can you give us a take without that? Because the studio uh, might have to say, have something to say about it. Now I've done movies back in the day, back in the nineties, they used to make uh, syndication versions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I had movies where uh, there were literally hundreds of edits and hundreds of replacements for cursing and for the N-word. And I've never actually sat through any of them. What? 300 changes? Okay, well, you guys do that and sell it to Channel 5, but I'm not watching that. And those, those versions have all long gone away and, and vanished now. But, uh, you know, I, I encourage ad-libbing usually. You know, people ask me, especially if I've written a script, they'll ask me, okay, if I put it in my own words, I always say it's not Shakespeare. You know, if I don't like it, I'll tell you. But otherwise, make it your own because it's going to be better that way most of the time, especially if you're working with talented performers. Did you have any uh, trouble with the MPAA uh, after your final cut? 
There's always trouble with the NBA. <laughs> There's always trouble with the NBA. I think every movie I did in the 90s, we had trouble with the NBA. Right. Uh, I became rather adept at working with them. Hmm. You know, I'd call them up. And, and another thing uh, that I don't think we did as much in Tales uh, from the Hood, but certainly in Menace and Eleven Forty Five and some of the other movies that I did in the nineties would purposely shoot a gorier take, a bloodier take, a, a, a worse thing that I knew I wanted to cut. And we put it in when we sent it to the MPAA. Because then when I did a negotiation with them, I'd say, this is killing me. But this really bloody shot right here. Right? You know, I guess we could take that out if if you'll give us the R at that point. You know, like, oh, let me talk to the guys about it. Okay. And I'm like, I was scared that one day they would come along and say, no, no, you can keep that. Because I never wanted those. <laughs> you know, we didn't work that hard on them. They were just there as a loss leader, so to speak. Mm. So, yeah, there's always was trouble uh, with the MPA. The first movie I directed was a thing called Caught Up. Crazy film noir crime movie. But uh, I had shot some things purposely too bloody that I wanted to take out. And then when I talked to them, I was a producer on the film. Uh, they didn't realize I was the director. That they were negotiating directly with the director. And I, I didn't want them to know that because I was playing good cop, bad cop, and I was the good cop as the producer. And let me go to the director and see if I can get him to do that. And they just, just didn't realize that I was the director. <laughs> um, they would get a lot through that. But, you know, that's always a, a, a challenge. Uh, I think less so now. Stuff has come out with our ratings that in the 90s, I think, would have been excess for sure, just for violence, essentially, the bloodiness and everything. Time marches on. I've never been a real huge gore guy, personally. You know, I like the, the violence to be effective, but not just gore for gore's sake. If it was really into that. Now, mm -hmm. some people will probably look at things I've done and say, well, that was pretty bloody. What, wasn't that gore for gore's sake? But I would argue, you know, like all the violence and menace to society, I, I think it was all important. It was, all, you know, it needed to be there. Uh, we were being the, uh, we were the, I guess, the hardcore or the, uh, most honest version of uh, Boys from the Hood. But if Boys from the Hood hadn't come first, we'd have never gotten Menace to side in it. That one was the one that kind of opened the doorway. And then we're like, okay, we got the real deal here. Yeah, that that car. I just have to say, like, on a side note, the car scene with the house being sprayed with the bullets. So that scene just still sticks. Like, no matter what, like, the brutal. way it was shot. Yeah, it was yeah. brutal. Like, it's still, like, if you think anything from that movie, it just sticks in. So, yeah. 
crawl and trying to save the little kid on the yeah, yeah like the every time yeah on the tricycle yeah Oof. gets you every time no that was powerful stuff powerful stuff i was very proud very proud to have uh, done that film ryan Oh, well, let's talk about, I guess let's talk about like, okay, you said we have a little bit of time in between here. Time moves on. But, you know, I wasn't thinking 20 years, though, before you get to make, like, before you go to the next sequel of this film. So tell me a little bit about that. Like, why did it take so long? Uh Uh-oh, you're rubbing your head. That's not good. Hmm. In 2000, we had a deal with Focus Features to do an $8 million, up our budget, an $8 million, because they saw the numbers that Tails had done on home video. Uh, it barely broke even, or maybe maybe they even lost a little bit of money on the theatrical release, but on uh, video and DVD, it went crazy. So uh, we had a deal to do that in the year 2000. And then, as so often happens, the head of the studio got fired. Somebody else came in and said, oh, no, 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 we're just doing art movies. Uh, so we're not interested in doing a tale sequel. And from the 20, for the next, I guess, 17 years, 17 or 18 years before we got to do another one, uh, we had been trying to get the rights from Universal because Universal, number one, did not want to do a sequel after mm. after that, and two, would not sell the rights to anybody. And, and studios are like this these days. Uh, they would rather sit on uh, a piece of material than have somebody else make a success out of it and make them look bad. Mm. So they just, we, we were stymied for almost two decades. And then finally, uh, finally, we were able to talk Universal. They had a division called 1440, which just recently closed down in April, actually, uh, that did their uh, straight-to-video sequels. You know, they do Scorpion King 2. Uh, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Another Chucky movie, you know. And... Uh, we didn't get the resources that we really needed to do it to match it up to uh, to match up with what we had uh, done in the nineties. But you know, we had fun doing the next two. And uh, number three, we feel uh, better about them too because it had better production value. Because we went up to Winnipeg, Canada, coldest city in North America. <laughs> One of the most, away from Winnipeg around, one of the most boring cities in North America, too. So, <laughs> didn't get distracted from the job. You were know, working, working hard on it. But really, what we wanted to do is a TV series. You know, uh, we kind of like to think that we were Black Mirror before Black Mirror. We were the real Black Mirror. Cause <laughs> We were talking about people, not the uh, Black Mirror. Uh, love that mm-hmm. show, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, got one 
one episode to go on this latest season. Don't no spoil it for me. I haven't started uh, yet. Yeah, I haven't started. I haven't had a chance to start. <laughs> There's some. I've heard very good things. It's really good. That's it. It's it's a good season. Good season. I love that show, and that show's helped revive the horror anthology. It's kind of gone up and down. Right now, it's down because they. Uh, the streaming channels did some horror anthologies that didn't work, but uh, we'll never give up on trying to do it as a TV series. Because I think, is there any movement on that? There was. Uh, we had a deal actually with Universal and the executive. I don't know why this keeps happening, but the executive who was pushing it uh, left. And then new uh, person came in and said, we don't want to do it. Well, we will pay you off uh, your development fee on the script. Mm-hmm. We're not going to yeah. do it. So we just took the money. But now uh, Universal doesn't have the TV rights anymore. Mm-hmm. Spike has them. So if we can sell it, to uh to one of the streamers or something we could do it now so we've written a bunch of them oh wow and uh hoping someday to get get them going yeah i mean uh still social problems to talk about let me tell you yes definitely netflix that they seem to do really well with their cabinet curiosity uh series so hopefully yeah they yeah get some movement if we get Garamo to uh, back us, uh, we definitely could get it done. <laughs> yes, or you should get you should do an episode of that. Um, actually, he's I, I know that he's making Frankenstein next, so he's yeah, that busy. should be awesome. Yes, <laughs> um, I'm expecting the best best version since the whales. Are. Whales, yeah. yeah. All right, what are you working on next? I'm just writing a bunch of things, and the next thing that they give me the money for uh but we're on strike right so yeah. it's just writing right now can't take anything out yeah hopefully that gets resolved soon yeah all uh, right uh definitely have a couple of four projects i'm working on mm-hmm. crime things so hopefully get something going as soon as we're allowed to again Excellent. I guess we're going to find out. Are we finding out tomorrow or tonight whether or not the uh, SAG goes on strike? I know mm-hmm. it's either tomorrow or or today. Probably tomorrow at midnight. I think is the deadline. So. Okay. Yeah, I know it's close. I know it's close. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know it's close. But all right. Well, we have a couple uh, fun questions for you before we wrap up. Sure. In the very first episode of the Tales from the Crypt TV show, mm-hmm. William Sadler walks into a diner and orders a cheese sandwich. Doesn't specify what kind of cheese. If you were to walk into a diner and get a cheese sandwich, what kind of cheese would you want? You can uh, grill it. You can make it a burger. Grilled cheddar. Grilled cheddar. <laughs> like a medium, a sharp, a smoked. Medium. Medium. All right. That's good. Like some uh, like some tomato soup to dip it in, or are you purist? That'd be cool. That'd be cool. I've had that. <laughs> Fine with the tomato soup. Yeah, I like cheddar cheese and grilled cheese sounds good. Nice. Maybe I'm getting really hungry right now. 
yeah that, that, that really that really hits the spot yeah yep i, I got through college on the cheddar sea sandwiches and tomato soup canned tomato soup oh yeah <laughs> All right. And then um, a tradition here on Dads from the Crypt is we like to give dad advice or mentor advice. Uh, So what advice would you like to give our audience? It can be fun. It can be serious. It can be silly. I would just give the audience, if they're filmmakers, Mm -hmm. if if they're aspiring filmmakers, just to shoot things. Shoot things because... Back when we started, you know, my first movie, we used an old Mitchell camera. It was the same kind of camera Hitchcock had used. The thing was huge, heavy, monstrous. You know, you had to have a dolly to put it on. Uh, and we're shooting film, which was expensive. And you had to buy short ends, et cetera. Now people can make movies on their phones. Mm-hmm. No excuse. If you're a young aspiring filmmaker, not to just be shooting, yeah. you know, shoot little shorts and you can name a lot of guys who started out just doing little uh, shorts or, or movies on video. Uh, Mike Flanagan, who's blown up, hmm. you know, you see his first movie. Uh, A lot of it takes place in a little tunnel and all that, you know, it's just a spooky thing, but shot very low budget. Uh, but people saw the talent in it and he got a chance and you have to show off your talent now. And it's got to be shown in a way that can go out to the public and people can see it and get excited about it. It's really hard to walk into a studio or production company now as a first time director and just talk them into doing something. It can happen if you have a brilliant script. That's the other thing I would say, write, be a writer. If you can write, be a writer. If you want to be a filmmaker, because that's really where you get your breaks is that piece of material you have. If people get excited about it, uh, then they'll back you. That's the advice I'd give. That's awesome. It's harder now. Yeah. And easier. It's, it's harder. Yeah. Well it's it's a different harder. challenge. Yeah. yeah. Harder yeah. to get it distributed. Harder to get people to see it. Harder to sell it. Uh, but easier to actually do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the guy uh, who did, I uh, can't remember his name right now, but. Uh, he did the re, uh, the uh, reboot of Evil Dead, not the latest one, the one before that. Oh, Fetty. Yes. He's yeah, because he, he did that short with like the invasion. The robots. Yeah. Yeah. Robot yeah. attacking the <laughs> yeah, city. That was great. You know, and it was on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And that's how it got his work. So, yeah, that's the thing. There's just so many, there's so many avenues now. It's yeah. It's overwhelming. But it's easier to put your stuff out there. Yeah. Um, well, Darren, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We all really thank appreciate it. Where can people find you? Any, any socials? Do you have any? Uh, uh, on Facebook. Uh, hit me up on Facebook. Send me a friend request. I'll, you know, I'll probably say yes. <laughs> uh, unless I go to your page 
and find out you're a Trumpster. Then you're not getting on. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, nobody should be surprised that uh, a creator of Tales from the Hood will have that attitude. <laughs> mm -hmm. But if I don't see that, I probably accept it if you're into horror. Um, I'm glad I passed the test um, <laughs> when I messaged you. <laughs> I got to try. I haven't I haven't started the test yet, so I'm going to try. I'm going to send it to you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> now you're going to start getting Facebook Facebook requests. All yeah, you got, you got to get a whole bunch of like Facebook requests. Like, you know, probably be, be from some people who want to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the nature of it. A red hat on. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, well that wraps that wraps things up. Thank you so much for coming on. Great. Um, Great to meet you both. On behalf you, yeah. on Good behalf you. of Dads in the Crypt and the Black Girl Nerds podcast, we thank you for listening and have a good night. <laughs> Follow Dads from the Crypt on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or I will follow you to the grave. <laughs> no seriously you really should watch but be careful what you ask for you may get it